If you have a copy of the scriptures with you this evening, I would invite you to open up to 1 Kings 12, verses uh, 1 through 24 is what we're going to read. Um, if you were here this morning and got to hear President Kim preach, we used to go and, uh, to the same church and worship together. And it's common in California to actually stand up when we're reading scripture, but every once in a while, it would be just long enough for the pastor to say, you can stay seated. And that is the type of text we have tonight. We're going to go through all 24 uh, verses here, but it is uh, it's good. It is God's word and... Um, Excited to preach this message this evening. So, 1 Kings 12, verses 1 through 24. Rehoboam went to Shechem, for all Israel had come to Shechem to make him king. And as soon as Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, heard of it, for he was still in Egypt, where he had fled from King Solomon, then Jeroboam returned from Egypt. And they sent and called him. And Jeroboam and all the assembly of Israel came and said to Rehoboam, your father made our yoke heavy. Now, therefore, lighten the hard service of your father and his heavy yoke on us, and we will serve you. He said to them, Go away for three days, then come again to me. So the people went away. Then King Rehoboam took counsel with the old men, who had stood before Solomon his father while he was yet alive, saying, How do you advise me to answer this people? And they said to him, If you will be a servant to this people today and serve them, and speak good words to them when you answer them, then they will be your servants forever. But he abandoned the counsel that the old men gave him and took counsel with the young men who had grown up with him and stood before him. And he said to them, What do you advise that we answer this people who have said to me, Lighten the yoke that your father put on us? And the young men who had grown up with him said to him, Thus shall you speak to this people who said to you, your father made our yoke heavy, but you lighten it for us. Thus shall you say to them, My little finger is thicker than my father's thighs. And now, whereas my father laid on you a heavy yoke, I will add to your yoke. My father disciplined you with whips, but I will discipline you with scorpions. So Jeroboam and all the people came to Rehoboam the third day, as the king said, Come to me again the third day. And the king answered the people harshly, and forsaking the counsel that the old men had given him, he spoke to them according to the counsel of the young men, saying, My father made your yoke heavy, but I will add to your yoke. My father disciplined you with whips, but I will discipline you with scorpions. So the king did not listen to the people, for it was a turn of affairs brought about by the Lord, that he might fulfill his word, which the Lord spoke to Ahijah, the Shilonite, to Jeroboam, the son of Nebat. And when all Israel saw that the king did not listen to them, the people answered the king, What portion do we have in David? We have no inheritance in the son of Jesse. To your tents, O Israel, look now to your own house, David. So Israel went to their tents, but Rehoboam reigned over the people of Israel who lived in the cities of Judah. Then King Rehoboam sent Adoram, who was taskmaster over the forced labor, and all Israel stoned him to death with stones. And King Rehoboam hurried to mount his chariot and flee to Jerusalem. So Israel has been in rebellion against the house of David to this day. And when all Israel heard that Jeroboam had returned, they sent and called him to the assembly and made him king over all Israel. There was none that followed the house of David, but the tribe of Judah only. When Rehoboam came to Jerusalem, he assembled all the house of Judah and the tribe of Benjamin, 
180,000 chosen warriors to fight against the house of Israel to restore the kingdom to Rehoboam, the son of Solomon. But the word of God came to Shemaiah, the man of God. Say to Rehoboam, the son of Solomon, king of Judah, and to all the house of Judah and Benjamin and to the rest of the people, thus says the Lord, you shall not go up or fight against your relatives, the people of Israel. Every man return to his home, for this thing is from me. So they listened to the word of the Lord and went home again, according to the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Gracious and heavenly Father, you are a great and holy God. You are a God who brings together all things for the good of your people, even when we are um, unable to see it by our own strength, Lord. And as we come before uh, you this evening, as we come to hear your word preached, Lord, I pray that you can open our eyes, open our ears and our hearts to receive this word, to um, preach the gospel clearly through this word, and conform us more and more to the image of Christ as we hear this word, as we are formed by the hearing of this word. We trust in you, Lord, and we give all praise and glory in your name. Amen. Have you ever heard of the phrase, might makes right? I found out when researching this, uh, for this sermon that this phrase, which isn't too common nowadays, it comes from one of Aesop's fables called the lion's share. And in this fable, a lion, a fox, a wolf, and a jackal, they all decide to go hunting, and they agree with one another that they will share the spoils equally depending on what they find. And so they go out, they hunt for a while, and after some time, the wolf calls out and says, hey guys, I was able to get something. And so before anything else can happen, the lion steps up and in his mind graciously decides to divvy up the spoils. So he counts the animals, one, two, three, four, and he divides the animal into four pieces. But then, when it comes to divvy up the animal, to give a piece to each of the animals, he starts by giving three shares to himself because he is the strongest. And then he turns to the other animals and asks, would anybody else like to make claim to the final piece? You see, might makes right. This fable is showing us that it's the one who is the strongest that has the ability to determine the outcome of things. And we all want the ability to control the outcome of our lives, right? Our jobs, our relationships, our desires, our fears. We want comfort, we want security. And if you're like me, then you probably can uh, equate security with things like strength, with power, with control. And it's easy to believe that if we just align ourselves with the strongest one in the room, then we'll be safe. If we can find the strongest solution, then they will secure the outcomes that we want. And this way of thinking comes out most, for me at least, when I'm uncertain. You see, I know in the, abs in the abstract that God is in control, right? But it be can be hard to trust him at the wheel when I come across another news story about hostile world powers or when another unexpected round of suffering comes my way, or when I'm in the grip of anxiety or in the fear of man. And perhaps you found yourself there as well. You found yourself in the midst of uncertainty, and you start to ask questions like, does God care for his people? Can he sustain me through this? 
we get nervous, and in the midst of that nervousness, we can tend to put our faith elsewhere and latch on to the strongest one in the room. And this doesn't always mean looking at a certain individual or a person. Usually it means that we look to ourselves first in the midst of suffering and anxiety, and then we try to latch on to something external. We try to latch on to these different strong deliverers, if you will. And maybe that looks like entrusting your fate to finances, right? If I can just listen to Dave Ramsey closely enough, if I can get enough money in the 401k, if I can just get that promotion that gives me the security that I need, well, yeah, then I'll be secure. Or maybe it's political security. This, kind, this candidate, he'll get our country back on track. And if he does that, then I'll be safe. Or maybe it's just justice itself. I cannot have peace until justice is established on earth as it is in heaven. We look to all of these things and we ask ourselves, well, maybe these things have the might to make things right and to deliver peace and unity and security. And that's where we find the characters in our story today. You see, Israel is suffering under an oppressive burden imposed by their king, and they've reached a breaking point. The situation's out of their control, and so their response is uh, held in the balance between two leaders, both of whom are competing to be the strongest in the room. And they're asking themselves what we so often ask ourselves. Who will protect us? Who will preserve us? Who will help us? Well, we have an answer into my, tonight's passage. You see, this passage reminds us that even amid fear and uncertainty, God alone preserves sustains, and unites his people in Christ. And so we're going to take up this passage under three headings. We're going to look at first, a foolish king, second, a fractured people, and then third, a faithful God. So beginning with a foolish king, this passage, it opens up with a coronation. King Solomon has just passed away, and his son, Rehoboam, is headed to the city of Shechem for the people of Israel to make him king. And as he makes his way, there's probably one question on the mind of every single Israelite who are also making their way to this pilgrimage. What kind of king is he going to be? You see, hanging in the backdrop, they might be thinking about God's covenant with David in 2 Samuel 7. You see, God promised to establish David's house forever and said that his son would build a house for the Lord and that the son would establish true worship, unity, justice, and peace in Israel. Well, Solomon built a temple, but he also introduced foreign gods to the Israelites. He was wise, but he also oppressed his fellow countrymen. So how would Rehoboam compare? Would he, like his grandfather David, be a king after God's own heart? Well, in the same breath, we're also introduced to Jeroboam, and he's a man living in exile in Egypt. He used to serve Solomon until one day he was approached by a prophet, Ahijah. And this prophet prophesied that God was going to use Jeroboam to punish Solomon for his unfaithfulness and that he would give the tribes of Israel to Jeroboam. That even though he would use Jeroboam to divide Israel, God still had a promise in the midst of this that he would leave a remnant for David's house. And so there's this prophecy given to Jeroboam that he would be used to divide Israel. And Solomon hears about it, and he tries to get Jeroboam killed in 1 King 11. 
And then as a result, Jeroboam is driven into Egypt, driven into exile. And now, years later, Israel is sending word to him, saying that there is a new king in town, that Solomon's son, Rehoboam, is about to ascend to the throne. And they not only send word, but they are calling him to come back for Rehoboam's inauguration. And of all people, why would Israel rally around Jeroboam? Why would they ask him to come back for this inauguration? Well, you see, they wanted a representative to speak to this new king about their working conditions. See, when Jeroboam used to serve Solomon, he oversaw the forced labor throughout Israel. He was well-liked, he knew the working conditions, he knew the people, and he probably knew Rehoboam as well. And so they choose him to come before Rehoboam and to ask him to lighten the burden that his father put upon him. They're asking for a lighter service. Verse 5, Your father made our yoke heavy. Now, therefore, lighten the hard service of your father and his heavy yoke on us, and we will serve you. You see, Solomon, he was called to serve the people of Israel. But we see that in the immediate aftermath of his death, his reign is remembered for the heavy burden that he put on the people. He was not a good king and a shepherd over his people. And therefore, like Moses before Pharaoh's son, Jeroboam is standing before Rehoboam, asking for his people to be released from a yoke of bondage. It's a cry for mercy. It's a cry that all of our hearts can likely resonate with. Please lighten this load. Please have mercy upon us. And yet, we can't miss out on the drama of this interaction. Because first and foremost, this is still a confrontation. Like, imagine this encounter from Rehoboam's perspective. He is going 40 miles out of his way to Shechem to um, partake in a formality, right? This is just a mere coronation. He already has the kingdom. It's just a mere ceremony. And so he's coming to this expecting nothing but some pageantry, right? But then out of nowhere, a man who has promised your kingdom and whom your dad tried to kill shows up with all of your people asking you to correct the wrongs of your father. It almost reads like a soap opera, right? We're on the midst of the wedding day, and then the estranged cousin shows up out of nowhere with all of the uninvited relatives to rehash old family wounds. It's confrontational. It's dramatic. It's catching him off guard. And again, the question we are asking as we are reading this is, what kind of king is Rehoboam going to be in this situation? Well, you see Rehoboam's initial response is pretty encouraging. He asks for time to seek counsel. And perhaps he's remembering his father's words throughout the Proverbs. Proverbs 1.5, Let the wise hear and increase in learning, and the one who understands obtain guidance. Or perhaps Proverbs 11.14, where there is no guidance, a people falls, but in an abundance of counselors, there is safety. Rehoboam seeks an abundance of counselors, asking advice of both the elders and the young men. And the text says that the elders were the same elders that served during Solomon's reign. These are men who have earned their title. They are elders who have served to the highs and the lows of Solomon's reign and have served faithfully. These are elders who know their people, and their advice matches with that. You see, they um, say, if you will be a servant to this people today and serve them, verse 27, 
and speak good words to them when you answer them, then they will be your servants forever. You see, they can see through the noise, and they can see that even though the request might have been a little direct, even though the request might have been unexpected, they can see through that and see the cry for mercy from the people. And they know that it's the king's job to respond to that cry for mercy and to serve the people that they may serve him. It doesn't only benefit the people, but it benefits the king and the entire kingdom. And yet, we also have the young men. You see the abundance of elders, the abundance of counselors. Uh, Rehoboam maybe seeks too many counselors because these old elders are wise, they are thoughtful, they can see through the noise. And yet these young men, they are foolish, they seem out of touch. They almost feel like Rehoboam's buddies that he went to private school with, fellow trust fund kids just waiting to get some power. And so we come to them, and what's their advice? Well, they say in verses 10 through 11, Thus you shall say to them, My little finger is thicker than my father's thighs. And now, whereas my father laid on you a heavy yoke, I will add to your yoke. My father disciplined you with whips, but I will discipline you with scorpions. It's almost like they're asking Rehoboam to compete in the cruelty Olympics with the recently deceased. And you can almost hear how this conversation probably played out, right? He comes before his friends, and they're like, wait, what? They said what to you? You think they can just push you around because your dad's gone? You are twice the man that your dead father is, and you need to show them that. You need to show them the kind of man that you're going to be. And so you've got to make their service even harder. Put them in their place, Rehoboam. You see, their counsel, it feels like nothing more than high school boys thumping their chests in the locker room. There's no care for the people of God. And yet, sadly, Rehoboam takes their advice. He comes before the people, and he repeats the words of the young men. And verse 13 says, The king answered the people harshly, forsaking the counsel that the old men had given him. What kind of king is Rehoboam? He's a foolish king. It's a king that doesn't listen to his people and abandons the counsel of good elders. He's one who is strong but not good. He is one who burdens those whom he is called to serve. And our text says in verse 16 that the people saw that the king didn't listen to them. And that leads us to our second point, a fractured people. His response is the breaking point. There's no coming back from this response. And so they break away from his kingdom. Verse 16, what portion do we have in David? We have no inheritance in the son of Jesse, To your tents, O Israel, look now to your own house, David. This is a rally cry for revolution within Israel. And you think that Rehoboam would maybe just let it lie. He knew that God has declared this to happen. He knows about the prophecy. He knows that Jeroboam would be used for this purpose. And yet, Rehoboam's just like us. He sees a threat and he looks for external security. He looks for external strengths in an attempt to regain control. And he says, well, I'm still king of Judah, aren't I? And some of these traitors are still dwelling in Judean cities. And so they decide to send Adoram to them. And Adoram was the taskmaster of the forced labor in Judah. And again, consider how out of touch his response is yet again. 
Israel is dividing from Judah because of their forced labor, because of their burdensome working conditions. And the king's response is to send the one person who quite literally embodies that burden to the people. I don't know if you've been following any of the news regarding all of the strikes going out through several industries, but there's a reason why we need mediators in those types of situations. It's not a smart idea to send the burdensome uh, shift manager into a room filled with disgruntled employees. Good things aren't going to happen. And yet, that's exactly what he is doing here. And to literally nobody's surprise, he sends Adoram, and they kill him. They stone him. And it's in that moment that chaos ensues. And the king, Rehoboam, in response, he understands now just how dire his situation has become. So he mounts a chariot to Jerusalem. He couldn't maintain power through the advice of these young men. He couldn't maintain power by sending his taskmaster. And so he thinks he can maintain power through an army. So he rides off to Jerusalem to try and gather 180,000 men to strengthen his kingdom. He doubles down one more time. And in the meantime, Israel is setting its sights to a new leader. Instead of Rehoboam, they're looking towards Jeroboam. You see, maybe Rehoboam wasn't a king like David. Maybe he wouldn't be a king who would establish justice and righteousness. But maybe Jeroboam would be a strong deliverer like Moses. God promised Israel in Deuteronomy 18 that he would one day send a prophet like Moses to lead them in righteousness. Well, maybe that time had come. Jeroboam, after all, was a man who was sent into exile by a harsh ruler, who returns to the ruler's son to ask for the release of his people, and who leads his people away from that harsh rule. There seem to be all these parallels with Moses, so maybe he is that new prophet, that new hope for God's people. And yet, Rehoboam, like Pharaoh as well, he gathers his chariots in a last-ditch effort to consolidate power. He summons 180,000 warriors from the tribe of Benjamin to take back his kingdom by force. And so we're almost preparing for another exodus-like clash, but within the people of God. And yet, just before all pandemonium erupts, God intervenes. God speaks through the prophet Shemaiah, and he says to Rehoboam in verse 24, You should not go up or fight against your relatives, the people of Israel. Every man return to his home, for this thing is from me. And in the first wise move of Rehoboam's kingly career, he listens to God and they return. You see, God is reminding him, Israel, and us that amid power struggles, amid division, amid chaos, God alone is the one who remains in control. This is not an unsalvageable situation for God. He said it would happen, and it happened. It might be shocking for the people of Israel, but in no way is this surprising for their God. This thing is from him. And because of this intervention, the northern tribes are able to break away from the oppression of Rehoboam and follow their new leader, Jeroboam. And the text says that they were in, at the time of writing 1 Kings, that they remained in rebellion against the house of Judah to this day. But I ask you, is this a happy ending? Is this a happy ending for the people of God? 
You see, it seems like Israel has experienced another exodus, and yet in an ironic turn, they have actually cut themselves off from the very context of God's blessing. They have moved themselves away from the temple, from the line of David. They say, what portion do we have with David? Well, it's through David's offspring that Israel was promised to be blessed. They say, look now to your own house, David, while they return to tents. Jeroboam has led Israel out of oppression, but he's also led them away from God's presence. So we come to the end of our story, and we're not left with a shambled kingdom and a new redeemed people who have been led out of oppression. No, we're left with two broken kingdoms in the place of one. On the one hand, we have Rehoboam, a king who oppresses the people he's been called to serve. And on the other hand, we have Jeroboam, a deliverer who has led his people away from God. And we understand to an extent that God's in control of this all, right? But perhaps you're tempted to ask, as they probably asked, why? Why, Lord? Why this way? This is certainly what they asked. And it's what we ask when we're in the midst of division too, right? Why, Lord, had things have to go about this way? Why are you allowing this to happen to your church and to your people? Can you save us? Can you deliver us? Will you be there for us? Will you be a good king for us? Although it may seem arbitrary, the Lord's control over this foolish king and over this fractured people points to the reality that he alone is our faithful God, which is our final point. So what was God's point in allowing Israel to be divided by Rehoboam and Jeroboam? We could do the reformed thing and just yell out sovereignty and move on as though that's the actual answer we're called to give. And sure, that's technically true. God is sovereign. God cares for his people. God directs all things. I love sovereignty. Trust me, I, I went to seminary. <laughs> but, but it's not a satisfying answer in the midst of our struggles all the time, right? Doesn't it often feel tone deaf to merely just say, well, God is sovereign. Move on. Buck up, kid. No, it's not satisfactory, but it's also not the answer that the Lord is leaving his people in this passage. These words, think about it, these words were written for Israel when they were in exile. They weren't simply written to remind Israel of how bad they were. It wasn't written simply to remind them, like, this is what got you here but it was written to give an exiled people hope. And so, when he's writing this, God is saying that the outcome of their story was never going to be decided by the disobedience and power of foolish kings and misguided deliverers. It was only going to be decided by the power of God's word. And we see that refrain throughout this text, right? That this is from God, that this happens according to the word of the Lord. Only he has the strength and the power to establish righteousness, to establish the worship of his people, to be strong enough to direct the outcome of his people for his purposes and nobody else's. And that promise that he would establish David's house forever, that promise of that original covenant, it wasn't broken just because the kingdom was divided. This was a promise from God. It was always going to come true. And that promise of a Davidic king who had established righteousness, it remained true through the rule of each and every failed king after Rehoboam and Jeroboam. 
It's not like we get this split and then we're on the up and up. If you've read the rest of Kings, you know how the story goes. We spiral down again and again and we get glimmers of hope, but then we fall even farther than before. And yet God's promise remains true. One by one, Israel watched their kings fall, and yet there was still hope to be found in the ruin of David's house. And we see that promise held forth in Isaiah 11, verses 1 through 5. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his root shall bear fruit, and the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord, and his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear, but with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist, and faithfulness the belt of his loins." A shoot was promised to come from the stump of Jesse. And of all things, this reminds me of the movie Wally. If you've ever watched Wally, it's about this little robot, Wally, who is roaming a desolate earth after it's been abandoned by humanity. The earth has become so uninhabitable that humanity has been exiled to space. And so this lovable little robot goes across the earth day after day collecting trash until one day, He comes across this little shoot coming up from the ground, this special plant, and that becomes a symbol of hope for humanity exiled to space. It becomes hope that they will one day return to a land that is filled with life, a land that is habitable once more. And that is very similar to the hope held out to the people of Israel in the midst of exile and desolation. After, they seek, after they're stuck from the outcome of all these foolish kings, there is hope and a shoot from the stump of Jesse. And we all know who it is. It's not all of the offspring of David, but it's the one singular offspring of David, Jesus Christ, who has become the hope of humanity. Jesus always and only was the ultimate hope that has always been held out for God's people both then and now. Because you see, unlike Rehoboam, he's a wise king who hears our cries for mercy and he has stooped down low to serve us. Unlike Jeroboam, he has shown his power in weakness on the cross. And by his life and death, he has delivered us from the burden of our guilt and our sin. He is an all-powerful Lord and yet reminds us that his yoke is easy, that his burden is light. He is the one true and faithful king And yet he came not to be served, but he came to serve us, even to the point of death on the cross. And he did all of this for proof. Christ is the proof that God cares for his people, that Christ is the one who is strong enough to determine the outcome of our story and who has already determined that outcome on the cross. He has said something definitive by his blood and his sacrifice. And the resurrection, even beyond that, proves that what he said was true. The resurrection is God saying that everything Christ said in his earthly ministry is true, that Christ's life and death is vindicated, that it wasn't for nothing. And so Christ ultimately preserves, sustains, and unites his people. And in the grand scheme of history, through its ups and downs, 
God was working all things together for our good by pointing us to Christ, in whom all things hold together. As we read earlier in Colossians 1, 16 and 17. And this isn't merely true, though, with respect to the grand scope of history. It can be easy to see all of these grand pictures, to see how God works through all of the pages of Scripture to point towards Christ, to point towards that final outcome, and yet think that God is very distant in our day-to-day lives. But you see, this macro-level operation of all things together for His people proves the fact that He is walking alongside us sovereignly but also intimately in all of the ups and downs of our day-to-day life. He doesn't just loom over us distant at arm's length, but He is walking alongside us in the very midst of the ups and downs of the Christian life. And we see that amid suffering and amid struggle, that we are given the image of Christ, that amidst affliction and amidst uh, confrontation, that Christ has sent us His Spirit, the Spirit, the Comforter, the one who conforms us to the image of Christ, the one who encourages us, the one who comforts us, walks alongside us amid every trial and heartache, that God in Christ and by the Spirit gives us peace and hope, that He promises that He will sustain us even in the very details of our life. But does this mean that we are called to passively comply to every situation that we find ourselves in? That we are called to simply just let go and let God without giving a second thought to our circumstances? To chalk everything up to sovereignty, maybe, and just move on? I don't think that's what this passage is saying. You see, I think we need to remember that it's not wrong that Israel was seeking relief from that burden, right? That is the cry that each one of our hearts has in the midst of this world, in the midst of suffering, in the midst of sin. We want mercy. We want relief. And that is a good desire because it's a desire grounded in the fact that this world is not the way that it should be, that our hearts are recognizing that we were created for something greater. We were created for a different reality beyond this, right? But... So it's a good thing to desire mercy. It's a good thing to seek relief from corrupt circumstances when able. If you are in the midst, for example, in an abusive work relationship, if you are caught in the midst of a home that's dangerous, if you are in a friendship that is domineering, that is damaging, that is even demonic in ways, it's okay to try to find ways to seek relief from that burden. This text isn't a tone-deaf assertion to passively comply to every hard situation we find ourselves in. Because I think that's what happens from a disordered understanding of sovereignty. Well, God is sovereign. I find myself here. Therefore, I must endure every single abuse that comes my way. I don't think that's what this text is saying. And that said, though, there are many times, and we all know this, there are many times when we can't change our circumstances. There are many times when we are caught in the midst of hard providences from God and there is no um, creaturely way out. And so what do we do then? Do we take matters into our own hands like Jeroboam? Do we try to assert our strength? Do we try to pick ourselves up by our bootstraps and find our own way out? Do we, like the Israelites, look away from God because we don't think that He really has the power to get the job done? to really help us in the details of our lives? No, we can't do that either. 
It's good for us to seek relief, security, peace, and safety. But God reminds us that none of these things are ultimately promised in a lasting way in this life and should never be sought apart from God. And it's during the times when God feels silent then that we need to remember His care for us. Because often God can feel silent in the midst of our prayers, can He not? But, and that's when we're most tempted to look away. It's when we're most tempted to try and find the strongest in the room. That's when we're most tempted to find strength in ourselves or through any other kind of deliverer. But instead, he tells us to look away from money, to look away from politicians, from child-rearing strategies, catechetical knowledge, and even justice itself as anything that can ultimately deliver or sustain us. These are all great things, but they cannot save you. They will always come up short at the end. Instead, God reminds us that he has worked all of history together to preserve, sustain, and unite his people in Christ. And if you are united to Christ, then he is actively, actively, even in the most mundane details, working all things together for your good, for your holiness, for your eventual glorification. And if you are united to Christ, then you can have hope, even if it feels like he is absent, even if it feels like he is nowhere to be found. He is nearer than we can possibly imagine. Just look at the pages of Scripture, all of the mundane details that we are so prone to gloss over when reading Scriptures. They are recorded to remind us that God has sovereignly worked all these things intimately for good to point us towards Christ. And therefore, we need to find this balance. We are allowed to be active. We are allowed to pursue ways to seek different circumstances if possible, And yet, when that's not found, when that's not promised, we're also called to be patient and faithful. We're called to seek good and justice without making it or ourselves the Savior. And I think something close to the answer is given to us in 1 Peter 2, 19. For this is a gracious thing when, mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if, when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But when you do good and suffer for it, you endure. This is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. One of the greatest reminders that I was ever given in the midst of my theological training is that Christ is first a gift before he's our example. And that's what Peter is lying out here. He's not simply saying, well, you're suffering, Christ suffered, you should suffer. We need to be more like Christ. No, what he is saying is that Christ suffered for you. That is definitive. That is true. That says something about you. If you have placed your faith in Christ, that means that Christ suffered on the cross for your sake, to take away your sin, to grant you his spirit, that you can endure with patience the trials of this life. It's not this rote example of Christ did this, so we do it. No, it's Christ did this, and because of that, you now have the freedom to live a life in accordance with him. It won't be perfect. It'll be hard. These lives that we live, the the outcomes of our sins, the midst of suffering, it's hard. And yet, we have been given the opportunity to live with an eye towards Christ, with an eye that remembers the way that he works all things together for his good. And so we are called to actively rest 
in what Christ has done, to actively rest with patience in the midst of these circumstances, because anything other than Christ will never be strong enough to change our reality in a lasting way. Jesus has brought about a new reality for those who believe in him. And that reality, that ultimate reality, the reality that we experience on the last day, that he is the one who is truly strong, that he is the one who displayed that strength through weakness on the cross, and that he is not surprised when he sees his people in the midst of division, confusion, sin, and suffering. Instead, he hears our cries for mercy. He stoops low to minister to us each and every day in the midst of our weakness, and he points us away from false hopes to the ultimate hope that he secured on the cross, the hope that we will one day stand before him face to face and that we will be like him, that there will be no more sin, that he will wipe away every tear, and that this is true of anybody who places their faith in Christ. He calls each and every one of us, believer and unbeliever, to abandon the false belief of relying on ourselves, of all these external deliverers that will only lead you away from God. And he confronts our unbelief, whether you're in Christ or not, and he calls us to draw near. Come to him. Believe in him. Know that he will give you rest and that one day all things will be made right. All things will be united in Christ. And so as we limp towards that day, each and every day in weakness, we know that his strength is made perfect in, our strength is made perfect in weakness and that he continually speaks a good word of hope to our weary hope, our weary hearts. He is our faithful and our strong king who has delivered us and will lead us home. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you so much that in the midst of ruin, you don't leave your people to themselves, that you don't abandon your people, even though you have every right to have left us Even in the garden, Lord, as we rebelled against you, you didn't leave us in the midst of our sin, but you made us a promise that one day an offspring would come to crush the head of the serpent, even though the serpent would bite his heel. And we see that that offspring is promised all throughout Scripture, from Genesis through David all the way to the New Testament, and we see that that offspring is Christ, fully God and fully man, the second person of the Trinity who took upon himself human likeness in every way, who is tempted like us in every way yet without sin, who lived a perfect life so that he could fulfill the law, that he could be faithful where we were faithless, that he could pay for our sin when we were unable to pay the debt that we had incurred against you and to bridge the gap between us and you, Lord. And now we who have placed our faith in Christ by the power of the Spirit at work within us can have hope. And that hope is held out to those who don't know you as well, Lord, that you call those who do not believe to come, to rest in Christ, to know that he declares them to be righteous regardless of anything that they have done, that even the vilest of sinner can come to you and find mercy. And that if we have, as we have found mercy, Lord, that you don't simply leave us. You don't welcome us in the front door and then leave us to travail this life by our own strength. But instead, Lord, you walk alongside us. Your spirit unites us to Christ who ministers to us each and every day, each and every week through preaching, through the sacraments, through prayer, through fellowship. All these ways, Lord, you use to remind us of the hope that is within us, the hope that we have been called to, the hope that we are looking forward to day after day. 
And because of that, Lord, we, I ask that you can help us all to patiently endure suffering, to not have this passive acquiescence that simply says, well, it is what it is, and move on, dying just a little bit more on the inside. But instead, Lord, we can actively rest, regardless of whatever situation we find ourselves in, that we can weep with those who weep, rejoice with those who rejoice, Lord, that we can do all things through Christ who strengthens us, meaning that, as Paul meant it, we can do all things, whether we are blessed, whether we are amid suffering, that you strengthen us. You carry us the whole way, Lord. And we need to be reminded of this. We can only patiently endure when we remember first and foremost what Christ patiently endured for our sake, that it's only by resting in the gospel that we can have hope and endurance in this life. So strengthen our weary hearts, Lord. Strengthen us to press on and to put our hope in you alone. We pray this in Christ Jesus' name. Amen. If you'll rise, we'll sing uh, number 359, Blessed Be the Tie That Binds. of God, loved by him. He blesses you as you go out. The Lord bless you and keep you. 
The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift his countenance on you and give you his peace. Amen.